Hi guys, welcome to Uncomfortable, where the goal is to have honest conversations about the issues dividing America. And great news, all new episodes of Uncomfortable are now available on the TuneIn app. New episodes will be released every Friday on TuneIn. That's four days early, just for TuneIn listeners. So download the app today and listen for free. Here with me in studio is the author of this book, out now. It's called Thanks, Obama, My Hopey, Changey White House Years. David Litt joins us in the studio. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, this is a speechwriter's memoir. You were a speechwriter for the Obama administration, for the president himself. This is, it's probably the funniest thing I've read about the Obama administration. It was really nice to read something funny about politics. <laughs> so thank you for that. But thank you. I'm glad you liked it. What made you want to write this book in this way now? Well, I had what in D.C. passes for a comedy background. I, I had done one internship at The Onion um, that was here in New York, and I had done improv and stand-up comedy in high school and college. So I was like the token White House funny person when I was at the White House. And I figured I wanted – I had all these fun stories about times I embarrassed myself in front of the president, mm -hmm. and I was not in the inner circle. So I didn't feel the need to write about all these historic moments that I helped create because I didn't. So I thought, <laughs> OK, that leaves me free to write about – all the funny stuff that happened. Mm -hmm. And I've, you know, I've read White House books and there's many of them that I love, but not a lot of them are from that perspective of somebody who's 24 years old and in way over their head. And I felt comfortable talking about that and admitting it. And I thought it would be a fun book. Have you gotten any response from people you worked with, uh, either questioning some of the facts? Because <laughs> when you're trying to be funny, you can be liberal with the, the facts too. But have people responded from well, those the, you worked with? Well, the book with? is out today, I mean, uh, September 19th. So uh, I imagine that, you know, there were thousands of people who worked for the Obama administration. I hope they all buy six copies and, and read it extensively. <laughs> Hand them out to friends and family. Exactly. It make, makes a great bar mitzvah gift. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that, uh, no, so far I've gotten a lot of positive comments, which have been great. And, you know, I think it's one of the interesting things about it is I tried pretty hard to write a book that where if I talked about someone and they were not already a public figure, mm -hmm. Nine times out of ten, I wanted to use a pseudonym, not because it was so embarrassing, but just because I didn't want to have to think about: Does this person want this in the book? Do they not want it in the book? Got it. Um, you know, I wanted it to be sort of fun and lighthearted, and it, it's a political book, so I'm sure that people are going to try to make hay out of it. But I don't think it's you know it, it is not a scandalous book, and so if you're looking for like a really good gossipy you know, read, this is this is not it. But you should still buy the book. Oh, there's a little bit of scandal in there. Right? I, I, okay. Don't tell well, we can. Short. Yeah, we can talk about we that. I don't know. I don't that. even know what you're referring to, but <laughs> we'll see. Well, maybe one of these many post-it. Yes, notes. I was. <laughs> Does it freak you out when you see this? Well, the other thing though is it that you have post-it notes and they say one, yeah. two. Mm -hmm. I don't see a three. Yeah. So it's possible you're just. Three. This might just be a power move. Like <laughs> I don't know that you actually. You're going to open to the book and be like, "Oh, I did. You're all right, me way yeah. more credit. Than I don't I know. Deserve. These yeah, are all we'll random. See. I just put them in here to make but, it seem like I yeah, read it. I'm intimidated. Um, one of the things we like to do here is hear about how people got to the place where they come to believe the things that they do. In this case, your approach to comedy and politics. So I just want to hear about you, where you grew up, how you grew up how you came to be interested in comedy and improv in the first place. So I grew up not too far from where we're recording, the ABC studios. I grew mm -hmm. up on the Upper West Side, um, 86th Street between Columbus and Amsterdam. Oh, right around the corner. Right around the corner. Okay. And I, you know, I my family was not super political, but the way I think about it is my parents kind of followed politics the way other people's parents might follow sports. Okay. It was a, I feel like that's pretty common in New York, sort of current events being a thing you, you care about, whether or not you're intimately involved in them. Right. 
And I thought that that was something I might be interested in. And then um, when I was in ninth grade, actually, I there was a talent show coming up in high school. And I remember I was walking around. I was like on 86th and Broadway. And I was just walking down the street. And I was like, hey, I just thought of a joke. And so I went and I did stand-up comedy at this school talent show. And that's one of those things where whether or not that first amateur comedy performance goes terribly or merely poorly kind yeah. of dictates a lot about what's going to happen in the rest of your life. Right. And it, it didn't go terribly. And so I thought, okay, this is good. Which is to say it went exceedingly well. Well, it went, I would say I was the, the best ninth grade stand-up comic at that talent show. Wow. Um, and okay. it, it went well enough that I thought, okay, I should be doing this all the time. And then I became the like weird 15-year-old showing up at amateur night in, you know, I used to go to Stand Up New York yeah. a couple blocks from here. When you were 15? Yeah, and I would, and my parents had to bring me, which was really fun for everybody involved. Were your parents cool with this? They were uh, tolerant of it. They did it, which I think is speaks well of them. I don't know yeah. that cool with it is exactly the way <laughs> any of us would have described it. But I used to go, or, you know, I'd go with my friends and we'd, like, sit in the front row and get heckled by the comedians who were there because they were like, why is there... A group of kids who clearly can't drink. Right. Like, you know, these are not just high school kids. These are like high school freshmen. They are not passing for a normal comedy club right. audience They're not sitting in the front. Anybody. Yeah. So that we were an easy target for, uh, you know, for for crowd work. <laughs> and um, so that is way more about my, my brief and short lived <laughs> amateur stand up career. So politics and then was... I ended up in the White House. And then, yeah. And then <laughs> naturally. Forward. Yeah. So anyway, I, so I'd done, I was very excited about comedy and that's what I thought I was going to do. And then what I write about in the book is the moment, January 3rd, 2008, I was on a plane watching CNN on television. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the night of the Iowa caucuses, and there was nothing else on TV. And so I watched Barack Obama give his victory speech that night. And it really was one of those moments when you can feel your life do a 180. I mean, bef- within two minutes, I was like, okay. Whatever that person is doing, I want to be a part of that. And by the time we landed, I was one of those people that would not shut up about Barack Obama. And as you can see from the fact that I've written a book about it called Thanks, Obama, I have stayed that way ever since. But that hopey, changey feeling, I'm using your words, which you borrowed from someone else. Yeah, I was going to say those those are Sarah Palin's words, technically. But Um, That moment, a lot of people felt that, right? Yeah. That a lot of that was what propelled the the first uh, Obama win in the first place. Why do you think that that spoke to you at that point in time? Because by all accounts, like you grew up very comfortably, like you were not involved in politics. You weren't looking for like a purpose or a cause or a mission. Why did it speak to you? Well, I guess it was one of those moments where I was looking for something, but I didn't know it. And I think to some extent that's what really good leaders do is they make you realize, oh, I wanted to be a part of this thing. Mm-hmm. And I didn't come to that on my own. Someone else figured it out first and they presented it in a way that made me realize that about myself. Um, to me, what was amazing about the first campaign in particular mm-hmm. was this idea that, uh, I mean, it, it's almost funny to think about it now because of how partisan and broken our politics have gotten, but this idea that politics could be bigger than party. And that was a huge part of the 2008 campaign, this idea that good ideas could come from anywhere, Republicans, Democrats. You know, when we said, yes, we can, we really did mean everybody, I mean, not mm-hmm. just Obama voters, but Hillary voters in the primaries, Republicans. There was a sense that we were all discovering something together. And the part of that, too, was who Barack Obama was, um, his own personal story, both the fact that he was running to be America's first black president, that mm-hmm. he was biracial, that 
Uh, he, in many ways, represented this American story where, you know, as he said in the 2004 convention speech, he said, I shouldn't be here. Right. And I think even though I didn't have that experience growing up on the Upper West Side, I was like a totally sheltered kid. I rec- uh, to me, that reminded me of what my parents or grandparents would tell me about the experience of my great-grandparents who came here. Oh, right. That idea. And, and so to some extent— it connected to you in some way in exactly. your family. Like someone had a similar story. Right. That idea of saying, I shouldn't be here, not so much me personally, but the idea that you know my great-grandparents, who most of them fled Eastern Europe to avoid being persecuted because they were Jewish, mm-hmm. and the fact that not only did they survive, but then they came to this country where— that level of that idea of persecution didn't apply to them in the same way. And yeah. the generation, but anyway, it's a familiar story, but that familiarity is pretty astounding about America. I mean, that's yeah. not, if we were having this conversation in most other countries, you wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, you know, that amazing story where people come here with nothing and then make something of themselves. Like, no, that doesn't happen in this country. Um, I want to ask you about, let's fast forward a little bit. You go to work for the campaign, you volunteer for them, you're on the ground, you're doing the door knocking. Yeah. You're all in. I'm all in. Uh, and then he wins, and then you hope that you will get a job in the administration, and you don't. Right. Like a lot of people. Right. And you go to work for, is it like a crisis communications firm? Yes. It's like a messaging firm of some kind? That That's right. Yeah. So the way I, I talked about it in the book was to say I didn't move to Washington hoping to get a job with Obama any more than a fish fan goes to a fish fa- concert hoping to get a job with fish, right. which is true. I mean, I, I did not expect that you know I was going to show up and Barack Obama was going to say, hey, you look, you know, like you've got some potential, want to come work in the White House. I mean, you hoped it would happen. Yeah, it would be right? nice. Yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't turn it down, right. but I didn't expect that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, what I did hope is that I would sort of find my place in this new and better Washington because there was a time when we thought we could change Washington. And I think Barack Obama kept a lot of his promises and did a lot of great things. But one thing that he has spoken about and I think is certainly true, Washington did not improve in the way that we hoped. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, we didn't know that. And I was just trying to figure out a way to stay in D.C., kind of find my place. So I got an internship at a uh, firm I refer to as the Crisis Hut. Yes, because which is not its real name. Which is not its real name. Uh, have to be very clear. Uh, and I, the thing that I learned at this firm was that basically most of our clients who were in a crisis were in a crisis because they deserved to be. I mean, it was at the time as Wall Street banks right during the financial crisis. It was coal companies, you know, where workers were being injured or killed in accidents. Um, th- these were not companies where you think, well, I'm, we're sticking up for the little guy. And it was a real transition after the campaign. Right. Um, that said, it, it still does not justify my behavior at the time. Yes. Uh, and you write about this hilariously. And this this takes me to post number oh, one. Oh, yeah. All right. We've reached post number one. Yeah, we are there in that part <laughs> of the conversation. I wanted to bring it up because, A, I thought when you write about it in here, I found it incredible that you chose to acknowledge this in here, which is to say that you didn't want to do this job. You basically made it clear to everyone you did not want to do this job. Yeah, it wasn't great. You totally phoned <laughs> it in. You started slacking off playing Minesweeper all the time. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't phone it in playing Minesweeper. <laughs> I was very, very thorough about the Minesweeper I was playing, just to be clear. But you you were not killing it. Uh, no, I think it's very fair to say I was not killing it. taking advantage of the opportunity as it had been presented to you, which was a job you got by way of connection, too, right? right? And it was also it, one of the things, looking back on it, the idea that I was like, well, I can't just put up with something for three months right. uh, is a little, um, you know, 
was not my finest moment. But we'll you, you were we'll how old way. at this point? You're, I was 22. You're 22, and you write this. So you basically get called to the carpet by your boss. Yes. You get given a second chance. And yes. then you have this to write in here. I'm just going to read you one part of it, which was to say, you recognize at this point, I was lucky to receive it. Most rogue interns never get a second chance. And here it's worth mentioning that I benefited from what was known in 2009 as being fortunate and is now more commonly called privilege. And I thought it was incredible. This is early in the book. You went right into it. I wanted to highlight this, A, because you said in 2009 you didn't recognize it as privilege. At what point did it, was it presented to you or did you realize, oh, no, that would not have gone that way for most other people? I think that the what I wanted to get at is, at least for me, because I think this is a much bigger cultural conversation, the idea of it kind of changed. So, um, you know, I always feel like I was raised to understand that we were lucky. Um, you know, that, uh, and that's part of why I'm Democrat, you know, that if you are doing well, that's because of hard work, but it's, there's going to be some luck involved and you owe it to everyone around you to help other people have that same chance. But, uh, one of the things I think that, and, um, it was important to talk about was not so much that I didn't deserve some of the opportunities or the second chances that I got, but that other people, who deserved them just as much may not have gotten them. Mm -hmm. And I thought that just seemed like an important thing to say in a book, particularly early in a book, because I didn't want to write a book about, you know, me landing this dream job and pretend that it's only because I deserved it. Um, the way I think about it uh, a lot of the time is sort of you want to be tied for first with these kinds of things. Um, but then among the people who are tied for first, you have to get lucky or in some cases you – in, you benefit from the world being a little unfair. And I, it's hard to figure out exactly what to do with that. But I do think at least it's worth acknowledging that, yeah. you know, there is some unfairness that certainly worked to my benefit because I'm white and straight and a guy. And um, just as importantly, I had parents who could pay my rent while I was doing an internship or all, right. all sorts of things like that. And I think it's important to not to be so caught up in it that you say, well, you know, I, I'm going to be consumed by self-doubt, but to be aware of that because it ought to change. And those of us who are lucky enough to not be on the unfair side of that unfairness, I think, mm -hmm. have an obligation to think about it and do what we can. You write about um, some other ideas. It's at this firm where you start to come into contact with what speech writing is, right? What it is to kind of craft words. The, the, for other well, people. I got another internship. At oh, a it's speech a separate firm. internship. Yes, just okay. to. Uh, so I, I left. I did leave, leave the crisis. crisis hut. Yes, I was not uh, Go to fired. Speech writing hut. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So I left um, the crisis. I th they basically said, if you stop behaving like a monster, we won't fire you because who <laughs> fires their interns, uh, especially in the middle of an economic crisis? And I said, okay, that seems pretty fair. Um, and then once that internship ended, I, through a friend of a friend or a fr friend's brother, actually, I got an internship at another firm, which is called West Wing Writers. And that is their real name. And they're a speech writing firm in D.C., mm -hmm. all former Clinton speech writers. And they write for CEOs and senators and basically all sorts of people who want to hire former presidential speech writers for whatever their remarks are. Right. And I did not realize this, but I kind of lucked into the only entry-level speechwriting job and certainly the best entry-level speechwriting job in Washington. Why? Why do you say that? Speechwriting is a weird field because there aren't that many speechwriters. It's not like if you, you know, it's not like if you want to become a doctor, you go to medical school and then you become an intern and then resident and then a doctor. There's no equivalent of that for speechwriting. You sort of need to figure out how you're going to be in the right place at the right time. And mm -hmm. West Wing Writers, and there are a few other firms like this, but they're still 
the uh, biggest one in D.C. and I think the most influential, um, certainly among Democrats, they have, they're one of the few firms that have associates. So they will hire somebody who doesn't have years of speech writing experience because they think that they have potential and they're going to do lots of hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that's not enough when you want to become a speechwriter because people want someone who's written speeches before. Sure. That so would it's make hard. Sense, yeah, right? it's like any yeah. job, right? They're like, we want someone who's already done this job to do the job. And right. then you have to figure out how to make that happen. So how did you get that job? So I started as an intern and all of their associates left to join the new administration. So um, Meg Rooney, who I later worked with at the White House, she went to go write for Secretary Clinton Mm -hmm. at the State Department. And, um, you know, someone went to HHS, the Health and Human Services, and and so on. And so suddenly uh, there were four partners who were some of the most experienced speechwriters in the country. Mm -hmm. There was our uh, business operations manager, and there was me, the intern. And they needed associates, and I was already – I was there every day. Um, so by benefit of being there yeah. and being capable, you got an opportunity. Absolutely. And yeah. I, again, I mean, I think that's so much of, you know, I absolutely think that I, I had to take a, a writing test. I applied for the job. But the fact that they already knew who I was, the fact that I was around and they got a chance to see my work already, yeah, that certainly helped. Um, you know, I and we can get to this point, but I, I wrote for Valerie Jarrett, who was President Obama's senior advisor. Right. And she would always in commencement speeches use the phrase, put yourself in the path of lightning. And I think that was something her grandmother told her. But that always stuck with me um, because that it, so many stories sort of start that way, right? I was someplace where there was a lot going on and there was too much to do. And somebody said, hey, look over there. there is, there's a warm body. Let's see if that person can do it. Right. <laughs> and, you know, it doesn't always work, but at least you get a shot. You learn the craft, and it is such a craft, which I think not many people, you know, especially when you watch and watched President Obama speak, there was so much credit given to him as a skilled orator. But the words, obviously, a lot goes into those. And you had kind of like a graduate level study at this firm. And you talked about some things that I'd I'd never heard about them before because I'd never studied writing in that way. But you mentioned this phrase permission structure. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, which is something you learned there, and you applied it to sort of what you saw going on around you in the political context. And I wanted to ask you about that because in that context, you mention it with reference to Sarah Palin, with some of the things that she was saying as John McCain's newly minted running mate, with some of the language she was using that suddenly found a hold in American society. And you said that she was the permission structure that allowed these things to come about. And I I think now, I'm asking it because now a lot of people put a lot of the language we're using on President Trump. Mm-hmm. They, they, well, he gave rise to a lot of these things we're talking about, some of the xenophobic and anti-immigrant and yeah. uh, you know misogynistic language. You seem to be timestamping it much earlier. Yes, I definitely think it's much earlier. One of the things that I ended up living through and having sort of a, a first-person perspective on was not just the Obama years from the White House, but also some really drastic and, in my opinion, really troubling changes in the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to write about that even though I was not sort of an insider in any way in that process. Um, But I wanted to write about what I saw. And what I I talk about, when when we talk about permission structures, what that basically means is how can I make it acceptable for you to make the choice that I want you to make? So uh, the, the example I use in the book is that if you're on a diet, cheat day could be your permission structure for like a big plate of fettuccine Alfredo and, you know, a couple slices of cake and whatever else you want. Mm-hmm. So you say, OK, I'm still on my diet. I, I identify as someone on a diet, but cheat day. All right. And Sarah Palin was a one woman cheat day for 
a huge part of the country. And I saw that firsthand on the campaign. I, when I was out in Ohio, there were we would still we would hear these rumors about President Obama that spread like crazy. I mean, I remember I had a volunteer. This was someone knocking on doors for President Obama mm-hmm. or then Senator Obama saying, you know, I really support him, but I just don't know why did he spend Thanksgiving in a Muslim country? And I was thinking there's a lot to unpack with that. How do you even approach that when someone says that to you? Well, uh, there was this issue because some of it was trying to separate these two different things because sometimes people's concern about President Obama was that he was Muslim. And so to be able to say, to try to say, A, he's not Muslim. B, it's not a bad thing to be Muslim. Right. It's, that's a religion. It's, I'm Jewish. You know, you're whatever you are. Um, but in this case, it was an issue of kind of going online with with our volunteer and saying, OK, let's find, you know, my guess is Snopes has looked into this one and let's actually get to the truth. And that often happened. And mm-hmm. one of the interesting things that I saw frequently on the campaign was that people used he's a Muslim, but it was kind of shorthand for he's he's other. Right. They didn't. If you ask people, what does that mean? Like how many times a day does he pray? You know, which city does he does he face? They would not have answers for you. That was not, but it was this idea that he's foreign somehow. And Sarah Palin tapped into that very clearly and explicitly. The George W. Bush administration was not immune to doing that, but they did it sort of as quietly and they hinted at it. Right. And Sarah Palin- It was implied in the way that a lot of ugly things have been implied. Yeah. It it was often implied. They they were to their credit. I mean, a couple of days after- 9-11, 9-11, George W. Bush went to a mosque. I like how you started this being like, this is going to be a really funny conversation. And now we're like, well, let's talk about 9-11 and prejudice. But <laughs> but here we are. And, we are where uh, we are. Yes. Like, we are where we are. That's right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so I think Sarah Palin re- gave, just put into words this idea that there was a real America yeah. and a sort of anti, you know, and a, a part of the country that was against real America and... Obama and the Democrats were part of the uh, not we're not real Americans. Right. And that we we saw a real direct change take place. I mean, suddenly I had volunteer I was in a somewhat rural area and my volunteers who lived out in the country, out in the county, um, some of them had mailboxes like bashed off posts or someone would use their yard sign, you know, and they'd wake up and find it. They like someone used it for target practice. I mean, stuff that was threatening not you know no one was injured but it was really threatening and scary yeah yeah and i mean i i talk about the experience of walking out of my uh, walking out of a panera and i had a bumper a hope poster bumper sticker uh on my car and there was an older gentleman just screaming at my car in the parking lot and that didn't really happen before sarah palin that was a fundamental shift that took place and I remember on election night, John mm-hmm. McCain gave a very gracious concession speech. Mm-hmm. But when he brought up Obama, there were boos in the crowd. Mm-hmm. And you look at some of the ugliness we're seeing in Trump rallies, or we, and we've already seen in Trump rallies, and it's not hard to trace booing at a presidential concession speech all the way to some of the more dangerous and, and really awful things we've heard from President Trump. So I guess it's fair to say you were not surprised when you saw then-candidate Trump's campaign catch on the way that it did. You'd already seen some parts of America that might have found some solace in that. I was still a little surprised because I, I thought, as I think a lot of people did, that this is beyond the pale. I mean, when he not, not the stuff he said about Muslims, sadly, or immigrants, 
but the things that he said about, um, you know, John McCain about saying, you know, I like people who weren't captured. Right. Things like that just seemed, um, even in the way that Republican, a lot of Republican voters sort of thought of themselves and their values, mm-hmm. uh, it seemed to cross lines. And to be fair, I mean, it's not like Trump won a majority of Republican voters in the primaries, just like he didn't win a majority of American voters in the general election. Mm-hmm. So you did have this. But th- he won enough. He won enough. Exactly. And you had he was part of a he was the only one going out that far out on a limb. Yeah. And that meant that you had 15 other people competing for the other 60 percent of the vote or whatever the number was. Yeah. And so I think you had this moment. But I, I think, you know, going back to permission structures, that's part of what worries me about Trump is I feel like people suddenly feel permission to act in a way that no one should act. And it's because we have a president who acts that way. So when you were out there and sort of fielding some of these ridiculous questions and threats, and eventually when you go on to get a speechwriting job and you are now inside the administration and you have some hilarious stories about your early days there, um, are you you kind of weighing all these things that you saw along the way and thinking, I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to address some of these. Like, does all does that experience then inform how you go on to do your job once you're in there? It, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, uh, one of the things that I learned fairly quickly, but also learned the hard way a little bit in the White House was if you're a junior level speechwriter, you don't get to decide sort of what the message should be. And your job is not to rewrite the uh, to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Um, you know, my bosses, John Favreau was the chief speechwriter when I started and Cody Keenan was the chief speechwriter for the second term. Um, they had input into things like that. And a speech that Cody wrote that was uh, with the president, and it was a beautiful speech, was the one that President Obama gave at Selma. Mm-hmm. And he talked about patriotism in that speech and the idea that outsiders demanding a, uh, demanding to be American, demanding to be fully American, is not uh, some sort of socialism. It's not, um, it's not the other. It's not against real America. Mm-hmm. That's what America is all about. And so I do think that President Obama dealt with that. And in, and the other thing, of course, is when we wrote jokes, that was another way that President Obama could talk about some of that stuff without validating it. Yeah. But, I mean, I was looking back at some of these. He was joking about birtherism well before I started the White House. I yeah. mean, 2010, he made jokes about birthers before Trump was a, was sort of the birther, you know, the the main birther or the, whatever. <laughs> I don't know. What, what is you, that title? You I don't know. It? Yeah. The, <laughs> I was going to say the birther in chief, but I'm like, I don't know. That that seems too close to where we're at. And I don't know. It gets, <laughs> I, I need to sit down and, and think about that one or maybe not. You talk about the idea of holding the pen. Yeah. Like the first time that you get to take ownership yeah. over those words. It was a Thanksgiving address. Yes. It in was what year? It was 2011. The president okay. did a, a video wishing America a happy Thanksgiving. Yes. And you get to write it. Yes. For me, this was a very big deal. Yeah. And you are how old? You're 24? 25 at the time. 25 at yeah. the time. And you write this great address. It's got everything you think it needs. Yeah, it was. It. I mean, it was fine. It was fine? Yeah. I okay. Mean, <laughs> I was being kind. You tell me. Yeah, you're very... No, it was... Uh, <laughs> I think it was... Um, I, I put a lot into it, but, you know, you, it wasn't like... I, I didn't reinvent or reimagine Thanksgiving. It was... But I think I did a, a perfectly good job. But... 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 The reaction is not good. Why? Tell me. Well, I left out God. Um, and that was on me. Uh, and I hope that I'm forgiven. Uh, but <laughs> but that caught you by surprise. It did. Because you thought you killed it. And then the next day the headlines came back. And it was mostly conservative media. Yes. Right? But just saying, how on earth could he leave God out of the Thanksgiving address? Well, and so what happened was, and and I 
talk about this, that um, I had used the word blessings, that we sort of give thanks for our blessings. And like, who's handing out these blessings, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not like Oprah's out there saying, okay, you get a blessing and you get a blessing. This is, come on. But what happens and the way this tends to work is, so Fox News finds a thing to complain about, mm-hmm. basically. And they say, Obama leaves out God. Now, obviously, this gets into all of the other stuff we're talking about, where is he secretly not a Christian? You know, it, it, otherwise this would not have been an issue. Right. Um, because George W. Bush left out God five of eight times and Fox News never mentioned that. But he wasn't suspected of being Muslim. Exactly. And there, and there wasn't this industry that was sort of devoted to just derailing him no matter what. Um, and uh, I do mention that then what happens is the, the sort of uh, mainstream press – then they don't cover the story, but they cover the controversy. Mm-hmm. So ABC News um, wrote something online that was, you know, Obama leaves out God, riles critics. And so then the news is some people are upset. And so it's a way of injecting these stories from being totally nothing and creating something out of nothing, taking, uh, you know, basically an omission in a speech and then turning it into a controversy and then getting everybody else to report on the controversy. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much because that's going to get someone who's sitting, you know, thinking about whatever, how they can get a better job than the one they have now. They're not going to say, well, I like Obama's economic plan, but that God thing in Thanksgiving, I'm done with him. Right. It's just a way of focusing the spotlight on something other than the president's agenda. Sure. And one of the things you had to learn as a speechwriter was that's totally unfair. It totally stinks. But you do have to remember that every word you write is going to be taken out of context, not just casually, but by professional people where that's their job is to analyze the words of the president to analyze and then distort the words of the president. Now, not um, that's referring to Fox News, not ABC News. Um, But I think there is, uh, you know, I mean, it is it's a weird thing when you have to look through and say, not only are we saying what we mean to say, but can we not be in any way misconstrued to be saying something else? Well, and I bring up this story because you're 25 at this time. Mm-hmm. You have zero speech writing experience before this actual job in, with the firm. Yeah, right? but then, I, I mean, not not a ton of experience. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. It's. Um, did you ever think, what am I, do-? like, I am not qualified for this role. I am not qualified to be writing the things that the president of the United States is saying. Oh, yeah, I thought that all the time. All the time. Well, because you imagine White House employees. And you imagine people who remember to wear a belt every day. Um, and I did not. I mean, many, many times. There was there was at least once when I had to borrow someone's overcoat because I had brought my suit pants but not my suit jacket. And I had a taping in the Roosevelt Room that day with the president. And I was like, all right, maybe it's winter. If I'm wearing my <laughs> overcoat indoors, he's not going to notice because, like, he wouldn't care, but he would definitely make fun of me. <laughs> You know, and I. But are you like the exception to the staff? Or, or you is mean this, like this, is everybody else or organized and competent? And am I there? Like, do like, other people remember belts? Is it? I, I think that generally, yeah, they were better at, at belt remembrance. If that was, <laughs> if that's a sort of job skill, um, that's not one I'm I'm particularly good at. I think there was uh, my. I don't know. I haven't asked everybody, but my guess is, on some level, everyone deals with this sort of basic contradiction, which is you're doing a job that is more demanding than any person should do. And that's not just true if you're a very important person, although obviously it's more true. But on some level, the entire country, the most powerful country on earth, is counting on you not to screw up Mm -hmm. in some small way. And that's a weird feeling because you're also just a human being. And you have to square that somehow. And I think my way of trying to 
make sense of it or at least live with it was to kind of laugh at it yeah. and enjoy it because it's just so silly on some level. And it doesn't stop you from doing the work, yeah. but you have to acknowledge it. Um, but I think everyone dealt with it in their own way. And um, that, that's one of the reasons I, I wrote the book I did because I felt like I – I'm totally fine telling stories where I do something dumb. In fact, those are my favorite stories. <laughs> and, you know, that's true of plenty of White House employees, but it's not true of everybody. And I yeah. thought this would be a different addition to that that genre of book. Well, there's some of the funniest moments in there. And um, your candidness is, is very much appreciated because I think a lot of people assume, you know, if you watch The West Wing or you've seen anything else, people assume things work a certain way. If you've never yeah. spent time in there, and this is probably more accurate <laughs> in terms of the real experiences everyone faces. But this idea of you being where you are, when you are at this point in time, it's fascinating to me because it's, I think people assume so much about what happens in the highest halls of the land. And, and there's, there's no, what was, what was surprising to me as I read it was you're kind of in it and stumbling along yeah. and you're doing what you're doing and you're doing your job and you're doing the best that you can. What was missing was any sense of mission. And I I don't mean that as as a knock on you, but there's, 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 I think people ascribe to people who choose to serve the administration, like a sense of service and mission and country. And maybe that's in you, but it's not in the book. That's interesting. Is that missing? Well, I would say, uh, you can decide if it's missing. <laughs> I think other people, other readers who I've, I've talked to have sort of seen it, especially at the end of the book, Mm -hmm. um, to me, what was important was obviously you have that sense of mission, and where, but where does it come from? To me, a lot of it came from not the work we did day to day in the White House, because honestly, you are just trying to do your job. You right. you know it's important, but if you spent the, you know walking around humming the West Wing theme song, you would not have time to do your work. So there are moments when you sit back and you think about it. Yeah, I tried to write about those moments, but they don't come up every day. And so I wrote about, um, for example, writing a speech for a mom whose daughter basically was only alive thanks right. to the Affordable Care Act. I wrote Who's about the convention speakers. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, I wrote about what it was like in 2013 when the healthcare website crashed mm-hmm. and my then girlfriend, now fiance, she wasn't insured through her job at the time. And we had to go on the site and get her insurance. And that moment when these sort of speeches where you don't get to feel all of the, your emotions because you're doing your job, mm-hmm. but we talked about it. And then it was really real because this person I loved suddenly could see a doctor if she got sick. Or after um, the the day that um, gay marriage became legal nationwide, mm-hmm. when the two of us went and we're standing outside the White House and it's lit up like a rainbow and there's all these couples there and, you know, all these people who are uh, having that moment. I, I wouldn't even call it mi- mission. It was more – it was it was almost like this moment of wonder, like that you get to be a part of these miracles. That's not most of the time. And I wanted to write honestly about the fact that 90 percent of the time – you're not thinking, oh, my gosh, this is a miracle. You're thinking, um, how do I get through my day without screwing up? But the reason it's worth doing and it's the re- reason it's worth all the stress is because at the end of that road, yeah. you, you have faith that some sort of small miracle will occur. There is this um, perception of the speechwriting team in particular um, that it was a very kind of like brotastic room. And you mention a little bit of this. You talk about it in when you talk about the email exchange and like what qualified as praise when someone was responding with edits. That if someone used the word bro, it was like you were in. And I, I don't, I, I mean, that's the perception from people who like cover the White House, from people who spend time kind of around it, not in it. And you know, I watched an interview um, 
you and uh, John Lovett and John Favreau gave. Mm-hmm. Um, and what struck me was it is three white men and you all made the decision to wear blue blazers on the day. I don't know if the, oh, John Lovett did not. It just I'm it was a blue it blazer was, right now. Yeah. You, but it was three young white men who ended up being some of the key voices for America's first black president. Well, let me let me unpack that by starting with the blazers. Okay. <laughs> Let's start with the most now, important thing. Now, I will I don't want to speak for anyone else. I ascribe to to the DC sense of fashion which is you walk into a banana republic mm-hmm. and sort of say I'll, I'll have one, please. And that's it. Fair so I, I did. I'm going on book tour. So I bought a second blue blazer. You can see this. It is a nice This blazer, nice little number is from J. Crew Outlet. Say. So I'm really branching out. Wow, that's good. Yeah, so in, in the D.C. world, I am a fashionista. Okay. So let's just, you know, put, put that part to rest. Fair enough. Um, you know, I, what I talk about is in the first term in particular, we were uh, essentially a team of all white guys, which was not ideal by any means. I mean, I don't think you have to be... You don't have to fit the exact profile of the person you're writing for to write a good speech for that person. I've written plenty of speeches for women. Obviously, I am not a woman. Um, There are things I would sort of say, sort of put in brackets and say, I don't know, maybe this is – you will have more to say about this because of who you are. Mm -hmm. And when the president was writing particularly about race, he would often – those were speeches that he really did get personally involved in. Right. Um, So many of the most profound things that he said about his experience or about the African-American experience – um, you know, those came from him because this was something he did bring a unique perspective to and would have regardless of who was on his speechwriting team. Mm-hmm. All that said, I think during the second term, I was really impressed by the way that the White House changed in major ways from sort of rooms full of white guys kind of being often the rule to being the exception. And that was not an accident. That was a very conscious decision to say, how can we walk the walk when it comes to saying that diversity is a strength, that we're going to be better off if our institutions look more like America. And um, I mean, I remember when I started and I wrote for Valerie, I was she headed the White House Council of Women and Girls, which was there to make sure that women there were there were women at the table mm-hmm. in all these big decisions. The example she always used was crash test dummies used to be all male. This was actually a change in the Bush administration, but used to be all the crash test dummies were like six feet and two hundred pounds, mm-hmm. and safety ratings were based on how well you could protect a six foot two hundred pound guy. Right. Now, as a you know five foot five hundred forty five pound guy, I too was ill served by these crash test dummies. But the point is, <laughs> they eventually changed it so that now there are two dummies. Right. And. It's one, one of the and that's because there was no woman making that decision. If right. there had been a woman in the discussion about how to do the safety ratings, yeah, we would not have had, and probably lives would have been saved. So thinking about in every little thing like that, how yeah. do you how do you make that change? Um, sorry, this is a much longer answer than I assume you wanted. No, but I think it's an interesting inter- thing. It's, it's a really interesting conversation because I'm I'm curious about. Look, you're in those halls of power. You're in those decision yeah. making. You know, and even though you were junior staffer, you were there. You had a seat at the table. And I'm curious if you think back now to how the conversation might have been different, or how things might have been framed differently if you had a woman there. Because we've actually we've heard from women inside the Obama White House who said we should do this thing where you would amplify each other's messages because we would get talked over in those meetings. But what, one thing, so I was, I, yeah. it was kind of mid-monologue, so now now that you've given me permission, act two of our, of our monologue here. But it's true. Um, so I would, I would do these um, speeches on the Council on Women and Girls. And mm-hmm. so I had the reverse experience where I would be the only guy in the room. And it was, it was eye-opening because I had never been the only guy in the room before. I was like, oh, okay. I can see why this is a strange 
you know, like this doesn't feel Was that feels the first weird. time in your life that it had been like that? Uh, I mean, certainly in a professional yeah. setting. I, I've, I've done comedy and, and writing, which generally speaking, I mean, these are both fields that could really use some, you know, some more equality. So I was gonna, yeah. where, where are we going for? No, I, I think so that's... <laughs> what, um, um, so, wait, so now I'm curious about this moment. So what does that feel like for you? It wasn't that I didn't feel overshadowed or like I couldn't say I couldn't speak up. It wasn't like, well, you know, this needs a male perspective. Right. I, I feel like <laughs> that would be the, that'd be the perfect male thing to say. Is I was the only guy in the room. And thank goodness, because what you all really need is to hear from a man. <laughs> yeah. But what I did feel was, oh, I noticed this. Because when, yeah. when I, I remember having conversations in college with friends of mine who are women, and they would talk about this. And I would say, well, you don't really notice. I mean, you're doing something, you know, you're in the student group and you're doing you're a leader in it or whatever. Right. And they were still uncomfortable with it. And I remember not really understanding. And it was over time that I gradually, I don't know, I mean, at least better than I did it when I was in college. Yeah. Sort of realized, okay, this, you're always aware of it. It's on the in the back of your mind. At least that's how I felt about it in the rare occasions when the, you know, the, the tables were turned. Yeah. Um, and and actually, sorry, we're really we're going off the we're going off the rails. We're but, in it, as yeah, they say. We're we're in it. Yes. Um, and I remember on the campaign, I had an experience where we had volunteer leaders. So you were uh, as a field organizer, I identified five uh, volunteers who I thought had leadership potential and could eventually sort of run their own organizations. Mm-hmm. And I came to my boss, uh, and I said. Jen, here are my five volunteer leaders. And she looked at them and said, these are all men. And I said, well, yeah, but I think that's a coincidence. And to her credit, she didn't say, no, it's not, you jerk. <laughs> but what she did say is maybe you need to go back and, and think more about it. Like, why don't you give more people a chance and really look into this? And if you really feel that these are the five best people, mm-hmm. then great. But you maybe you're not looking hard enough. Maybe yeah. you're overlooking something. And by election day, I would three of our five volunteer leaders were women and then nearly all of the teams underneath them were majority female. And it was an it was a really I feel really lucky that I had a boss who helped me figure out that I was totally overlooking that I was sort of seeing what I thought of originally as kind of leadership qualities were right. mostly just sort of qualities we foster in men and don't in women and that was bad obviously. <laughs> but it was it was interesting to get to see that. Anyway, White House <laughs> Council on Women and Girls. I mean, you if you're good, if we're going to open up this can of worms, now it's all it's the way open. open. Please yeah. go for it. So, I um, so I where I don't even remember where we were in you're this. You're at the this table. Story. You're yeah. the only dude in the room, right? So, yeah. uh, but what was interesting was, and, and there have been stories about, um, you know, for example, you were saying there were stories of women who felt kind of, uh, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but you know, basically talking about how. There was not enough equality yeah. when it came to race. In the conversations. In the con- were conversations, yeah, or in about, conversations. Like, yes, that they were talked I, I over, their stories. ideas were overlooked. Yeah. yeah. But one of the things that I think is important when we tell those stories and, and report on those stories is that when progress is made, we should acknowledge that too. And mm-hmm. so I tried to do this at the end of the book to say, you know, I would be in the senior staff meeting at 9 a.m. And this was not the really senior staff meeting, This was the, which is at 7.30. This was in the like 30-person senior-ish staff meeting senior-ish. in the Roosevelt Room. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's still cool. You're standing in the Roosevelt Room. You know you're, you know the Oval Office is just over that way. <laughs> and the the really important people were seated around the conference table, and I'd be standing in the corner with the other, you know, only tangentially important people. But over time, 
that conference table was almost always more than half women um, by the end of the second term. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting about it was that just became – and it wasn't uh, sort of something we announced or celebrated every day. It's just a fact of life. These are the most important people in the country and more than – I believe at the end, more than half of the – sort of most senior staff, the people Mm -hmm. who make the maximum amount allowable under law at the White House, were women. And so it was, um, it it was, in a way, something I'm very grateful for to be part of an administration that really changed. Yeah. And that also showed, hey, if we can go through this process in the White House, you know, we can say not just that we believe in diversity, but that we're going to actively value diversity and hire in a way that makes our organization more diverse yeah, and we can do great things in the White House, nobody has an excuse to say, well, we just have too much going on. Right. I mean, and, and I, you know, I went from the White House to comedy writing, which, as I said, is way too white and male a profession and I'm not helping. But <laughs> but, but here's the thing, because this brings me to this question, which is to say, yeah. look, you, you are now a head writer uh, and producer for Funny or Die. Yes, in, in D.C. In D.C. Yeah. You're in a position to make these kinds of decisions now. And it seems like you learned something along your path working for the administration. Do you more consciously make those decisions now? Um, I hope so. I mean, we're two people in D.C. And so (laughs) (laughs) and I work from home. So we're not really uh, we're not hiring a lot of people. But I do think that one of the things that um, I, I, you know, I feel weird saying like, well, I have learned because you never know. But one of the things I would try to do and hopefully do, and and this is this really went back to 2008 when I was on the campaign and and Jen, my boss, kind of gave me a sort of firm but still understanding talk about like, you know, you have to be a little bit more open minded and you're overlooking people is to start by saying, okay, how do we make sure we're interviewing and and sort of putting in a little of a um, what's the right word? Kind of, how do we make sure that we're not just le- leveling the playing field where I think it's level, but how are we going out of our way to give chances to people who don't remind me of me? Yeah. Because let's face it, I'm almost certainly biased toward like some white guy who thinks too much, right? Like those are people I think like, oh, you have That's real the potential. Role you occupy. Yes. Yeah. I'm like, okay, we need more of those in the world. <laughs> but the, you know, but how do you how do you um, make sure that that's not the only group of people you're looking at—the people who just look like yourself? I want to ask you about the um, White House Correspondence Center because you you share some really funny stories about them in here. You were the lead writer for four of those. For yeah, the way I put it, for for four years, yes. uh, I didn't write all the jokes. But yes. if the speeches had gone badly, it would have been my fault. <laughs> that's the real sort of like mark of power, right? It's like where? <laughs> no, that's not the mark where? of power. That's the mark of responsibility, which is very different. <laughs> Um, um, yeah. But the one I want to ask you about is the one that you did. You didn't actually write the jokes, but they seem to have resonated well into our recent history. It was 2011 when um, President Obama basically excoriated Donald Trump. Yeah, who was in the room. Do good, good. Wait, impressed dropping excoriated into a. Did sorry, like it was that? super casual, yeah. and then I was like, "Now I will stop everything." You're doing so well. Okay, sorry. <laughs> it's a change. Yeah, change your tone a little bit. But he, I mean, people have seen this video over and over again in the years since. And a lot of people point to that moment as the moment that Mr. Trump perhaps said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to make good on this and I'm going to do this. And you write about it in here because uh, you were in the room where it happened. And you said that Mr. Trump was as angry, as red and angry as a blister. And at the same time, you wrote, well, I remember thinking that's the end of Donald Trump. 
I did, yeah. Well, it, it was – so, uh, yeah, I didn't write those jokes, but I had just started at the White House. I was in kind of the cheap seats, so I was watching. And it just seemed inconceivable to me that one person could be so thoroughly humiliated and and publicly shamed and say, you know what? I'm going back in. You know, And it wasn't – there was a big difference. I mean President Obama would tell jokes about Republicans from time to time, mm-hmm. not – you know, nothing nasty, I don't think. But, you know, they had some edge to them. The difference with Trump in the room was that uh, regardless of what people pretend these days, everybody hated Donald Trump. It wasn't just Democrats. It was, you know, the media thought he was ridiculous, mm-hmm. um, which I think was a fairly objective judgment. The Democrats didn't like him. But also the Republicans thought this guy is is a moron. What You know, and he's he's sort of sucking up all our oxygen. I mean, they they were right, by the way. And they should have cut him off when they could. Mm-hmm. But um, so when President Obama was making fun of Donald Trump, it wasn't Democrats saying, oh, this is our great moment. Right. It was Republicans also saying, yes, finally, somebody exposed this person for being a total buffoon. And uh, so it's rare that you get such unanimous laughter. Um, and the only person who was incapable of laughing was Donald Trump. And normally, I mean, it, it not because you might find it funny, but just because textbook – what do you do as a public figure is yeah. you kind of laugh at yourself to say, OK, fine. And then you, you know, whatever, go home and break furniture or whatever it is that people do in their free time. And he couldn't do it. Um, and it was it, it was interesting that his response to that was not the normal human response, which would be I'm never going back to a room like that. Yeah. But it was he kept showing up. I mean, we, we did a joke in 2015 where he was back at the dinner and President Obama said, Donald Trump is here still. And that was the joke because we didn't want to give him too much oxygen at the yeah. time. But what was he doing back there? And um, I don't think it's the reason that he ran. Uh, but I do think it was um, – A contributing factor? Well, I, I think it was uh, – I don't think he's forgotten about it. We'll put it that way. I actually think to what I, the way I've always thought about it is he watched the president of the United States get all this adoration and applause – for basically tearing apart someone who had been mean to him. Mm-hmm. And that's Donald Trump's dream. I mean, I think is like to have Hollywood celebrities and New York media people and Washington politicians all celebrate you for, you know, basically giving, you know, t- taking out uh, someone who you think deserves it. Mm-hmm. And I think that was it wasn't revenge. It was more of an envy thing. Um, I don't know that that's that an I, interesting way to look at. Yeah, it. I don't, by the way, he was political before this, right? He, right. The, the reason President Obama was making fun of him was not like, oh, Donald Trump has weird no, no, hair. No, he was running. We, he was saying he was going to run for office. Yeah, and, he, yeah, and he had become the times. the public face of the birther movement. Yeah. I mean, he was. It was not, um, and he was discovering. Remember, his TV show was not doing as well. It right. had started. The ratings had started to go down. Yeah, and so this was kind of this weird political reboot. And give the guy credit where it's due, I think he recognized or or instinctively recognized that culture and politics were collapsing in on themselves Mm -hmm. and that by becoming part of politics, he would reinvigorate himself and make himself relevant to the culture again in a way he was uh, quickly, you know, he's becoming irrelevant fast. Speaking of getting involved in politics. Oh, good. I thought you were going to say, speaking of irrelevance, let's (laughs) talk about the book again. (laughs) (laughs) You had this seat just to history, like a front seat witnessing history in the White House. You get to write things that the president said. And you're out of politics now, 
right? I mean, you're moved into comedy writing full time. Is that part of your life behind you now? Are you done with politics? Well, I think what I get to do at Funny or Die DC is kind of somewhere in between, which is nice. I, I didn't want to totally leave, but I didn't want to stay in and do a job that was similar to my old one, but not as special. And so um, what we do is, for example, if you're the League of Conservation Voters or the ACLU, uh, we help you get your message out through comedy. And it has to be good comedy. We don't do stuff that just that isn't funny, or at least intentionally isn't funny. But we have sort of a double bottom line with the videos that we do out of D.C. where mm-hmm. we're saying, OK, how do we make sure that people donate to the ACLU or, um, you know, how do we make sure that they think more about climate change when they vote or whatever the issue is? And it's a particular moment right now mm-hmm. where political comedy, people want comedy with a point of view. And so, for example, when Republicans were trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act um, during during the summer, uh, we did some videos about that that both did very well online and people enjoyed, but also directly said, if you're annoyed by it, you know, if you're pissed off about this, go to, you know, this website where you can get tools for how to call your congressperson yeah. and what to do about it. So it's like comedy to educate and inform yeah. and mobilize. Exactly. And it is a, it's a fine line because, you know, comedy needs to be funny and that needs to be your number one goal or th- the comedy won't work. It's right. not going to be good. But we're trying to do both. And, you know, I think we succeed more often than not. And that's pretty good. Um, and, and it was also similar to kind of as I thought about the book where I wrote a book that is technically a political book. But to me, it's a book about what it's like to be in your 20s and gradually get a little older and hopefully a little wiser, not necessarily much. Um, but, you know, that genre of book people have written about in all sorts of places. This mm-hmm. one just happens to be in the White House. And... At the same time, I guess there is something that I did want to say about politics and the political movement I was part of, particularly um, given the current administration and the Mm -hmm. idea that the politics of Obama and the ideas that made me so excited and inspired in 2008 are going to outlive this current moment, no matter how dark and depressing it can get sometimes when you look at the news or you scroll through Twitter and you just think, oh my God, how much more of this can we take? Um, Well, we will get out of it. It's just it's going to take a little while, but this isn't going to be like this forever. And in the meantime, if you need a laugh, this is a great, great, <laughs> That's great. the hope. The book is out now. Thanks, Obama. My hopey, changey White House years. The author is David Litt. David, thank you so much for being here. Thank Appreciate you for having it. me. This was really fun. Thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. Each episode is now available on the TuneIn app. TuneIn is a free mobile audio app available across iOS, Android, and Windows. Download it for free today and listen to the latest episodes of Uncomfortable four days before they're released everywhere else. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and at abcnews.com. And if you like what we're doing, take a minute and leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find the conversations, and we really just want to hear what you think. And if you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews. Or you can always tweet at me, at Navazistan. It's spelled N-A-W-A-Z-I-S-T-A-N. Or use our hashtag, Uncomfortable Talk. Uncomfortable is a product of ABC News. New episodes post Tuesday mornings, and don't forget... Each episode is released four days early every Friday on the TuneIn app. I'm Amna Nawaz. Thanks for listening.